You gotta take your Bibles and uh, turn them to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19. A chapter that I think some ch- churches wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole, to be honest. <clears throat> uh, the subject matter is graphic, largely depressing, <clears throat> rated R material, and preached rightly goes against the cultural winds that are blowing in our country today, in particular as it touches on the topic of sexual ethics and homosexual desire and practice. Uh, On top of that, this passage is uh, pretty dark and depressing, and we want to come to church to be encouraged. We want to come to church to be uh, lifted up, and we don't want to hear a downer of a message. We want to walk away feeling good with a spring in our step. I like that. Don't you like that? Well, I'm not sure if I can promise that <laughs> on a, after a reflection of, of Genesis 19. We'll see. Uh, but our number one goal when we approach God's Word should not be to hear the kind of things we prefer to hear from God, uh, is to hear what God has to say. And there are many encouraging things in God's Word throughout the Bible, but there, there are also those things that, uh, that are sober and serious and hard words that everyone needs to hear. God has a lot to say in Genesis 19, and it's going to take two weeks for us, I think, to cover it adequately. And believe it or not, though, woven into such a dark chapter are some small points of hopeful light that I'll share this week and next week. Uh, But before we read chapter 19, let's remember where we've been. In chapter 18, Abraham unexpectedly received three heavenly visitors. And and as he lavishes them with hospitality, he realizes that these guests are no mere men. Uh, Two are angels, and one is none other than the Lord Himself. And they have some good news and some bad news for Abraham. Uh, The good news is, is that he and his wife Sarah, even in their old age, will have a son. And it will be through this son that God's promise of worldwide blessing and salvation will be carried forward because nothing is too difficult for God. The bad news is that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are doomed. Uh, These people were corrupt to the core, and the only fitting judgment for such a cruel and wicked people was complete and total destruction. But uh, there's a pressing concern on Abraham's mind, namely his nephew Lot was living in Sodom. And as we took a look last week, uh, we saw Abraham's amazing act of intercessory prayer, that God might spare the evil people of Sodom on account of the righteous who may be living there also, Uh, that the righteous would not be swept away with the wicked. That was one of Abraham's primary concerns. And God, who loves to show mercy and kindness, assured Abraham that if there were only ten righteous in Sodom, he would spare it. And so the chapter concludes uh, with the Lord and Abraham parting ways and these two angels going down to Sodom. And the mission of these angels is to be witnesses of the extent of the wickedness of Sodom before it is judged. As Deuteronomy 19 says, that on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, this is happening not because God doesn't already know how bad things are in Sodom. This is for Abraham's benefit and for our benefit that we may be certain that the judge of all the earth will do right 
and he always acts based on perfect knowledge and information. He never judges arbitrarily or unfairly. He knows what he's doing. So these angels are, are to be witnesses of the corruption of Sodom and, and then to be agents of Sodom's judgment on behalf of the Lord. And man, are these angels ever going to witness the depravity of Sodom? They're going to get a front row seat to all of its ugliness. So let's now visit Sodom with these angels and see what they see, and let's hear what the, what the Word of the Lord has to say to us in such a cataclysmic chapter. So please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for reading the words of our God, a God who is kind and merciful and loving, and a God who is also just. We are in Genesis 19. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We'll read the, uh, the first 14 verses, and then we're going to skip down to, uh, to verse um, 23. Word of God says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gates of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. They said, Stand back. They said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you, have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Let's go down to verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a serious and sober word this is, but it is Your Word for us this morning. It is Your plan that 
in God's providence, we would hear this word on this very day. So, Father, I pray that your word would go forth with power and would not return void, and that you would open our ears and clearly hear your message for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Next week, we are, we're going to revisit this chapter, and next week, we're going to focus primarily on Lot and some lessons that we will learn from Lot's life. But today, we're going to mainly zero in on the city of Sodom and its people. And the first thing I want us to think about this morning is the nature of Sodom's sin, the nature of Sodom's sin. Uh, for thousands of years now, Sodom has been associated with sexual rebellion and immorality, in particular homosexual immorality. But if you've been following the direction of the cultural winds in the Western world um, for the past 50 years, and, and as, as there's been an increase in the acceptance of homosexual practice and the legalization of gay marriage, there has been a steady push from liberal Bible scholars and liberal churches to embrace a reinterpretation of Genesis 19, which says that the sin of Sodom had nothing to do with homosexuality, and that, and that this, is, and this is part, really, of a larger movement uh, to reinterpret what the Bible says about homosexuality. And the debunking of the traditional interpretation of Genesis 19 has been a major part of their, of their arguments, again, as they try to, try to change uh, uh, what um, we think the Bible says about this practice. And so I want to deal with some of those arguments and concerns this morning as we go through the text. Let's begin at verse 1. Now, verse 1 starts with these angels coming to Sodom in the evening, and they find Lot sitting at the city gates. Now, to sit at the gate meant that you were in a position of respectable prominence. You were an official in the city. You had some measure of authority. So, Lot's come a long way, uh, from, from tent-dwelling nomad to a, to a man of some standing in a great city. And, and note Lot's response to these visitors at the end of verse 1. It says, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now, there's, there's some parallels here between chapter 18 and chapter 19, and this is one of them. Like Abraham, uh, Lot receives these guests unexpectedly. Abraham was sitting at the entrance of his tent at home, Lot sitting at the entrance of the city, and like Abraham, Lot demonstrates his humility and his respect for these unexpected visitors. And in a moment, like Abraham, he's going to offer generous hospitality to them. Now, many will argue that the sin of Sodom had nothing to do with homosexuality, but instead the, the core issue was a lack of hospitality, and that the actions of Lot are contrasted with the actions of the Sodomites. Now, it is a sure thing that the men of Sodom were inhospitable to the visitors, and it's not insignificant to note <clears throat> that hospitality in the ancient Near East wasn't merely about being nice to people. It was actually considered a moral virtue and a sacred duty. And Moses giving us the details of Lot's humility and hospitable attitude towards his visitors, I think, is meant to show something uh, of his differences uh, between the, the him and the people of Sodom, and it's meant to show something even of Lot's righteousness. Now, some of you balked at the mention of Lot being righteous, and I can't blame you. 
after what we just read and after other things we know about Lot. And I've got big-time problems with Lot in this chapter and Lot in general. He's, he's a conflicted man. He's certainly not all good, but he's not all bad. And we'll get to more of that next week. We'll save Lot for next week. But here, he does seem similar to Abraham. And he certainly, at least here, is distinguished from the men of Sodom. Now look at verse 2. He says, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend, that, spend the night and wash your feet that you may rise up early and go on your way. Lot seems to be in a hurry, as if he doesn't want these visitors to be noticed by too many people. He wants to get them into his house, ASAP, and notice, he says that after this you may rise up early in the morning. There's no sleeping in here. Uh, the idea is that under the cover of darkness... Before the city is awake and out and about, he can quietly send them on their way. The angels respond in verse 2, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. And Lot's response is quite telling. But he pressed them strongly. That word pressed, that's the same word that's used later on in the chapter. The men are pressing pressing against Lot and trying to break down the door. He presses them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Lot pretty much has to twist their arms to get them to come with him. There's no way that he thinks that these men should be staying outside in the middle of the night. Some of you know that there's parts of Atlanta. You don't want to be out by yourself at one in the morning. You're just asking for trouble if that happens. That's, that's what Sodom is like. This is a dangerous city. As we begin to see in the next verse, verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So somebody caught wind of these visitors, and word spread about these newcomers until the whole city finds out. It says both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now, why do you think Moses gives us those details? Young and old, all the people, to the last man. Why not just say a bunch of people came? Why not just say a mob came? Moses says it this way because Genesis 19 comes after Genesis 18. And you may be saying, Deemer, you're a real genius. But what's the point? The point is in Genesis 18, Abraham prays for mercy for Sodom and says, if there are 50 people, righteous people, would you spare the city? And God says, I will. Well, how about 45? How about 40, 30, 20, 10? Would you spare it for 10? And God says, even if there are as few as 10, I'll spare the city. Now, that needs to be ringing in our ears when we come to chapter 19, and we're told that all the men of Sodom are surrounding the house to the last man. There's not a single righteous Sodomite in the city. That's the point. Whatever sin is on display in Genesis 19, it is something that every man in Sodom is involved in. Verse 5, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, as I mentioned last week, when the Sodomites request that these strangers be brought forth so that they may know them. That word know is used in a sexual way. It's like in Genesis 4 where it says Adam knew his wife. doesn't mean that, that Adam said, oh, there's, there's Eve, I know you. It's not what that means. That he knew his wife. And then like right after that, it says that Eve got pregnant. 
Now, folks on the other side of this debate would grant that while sometimes the Bible uses the word no that way, they would also say that many other times the word is used in a, in a non-sexual kind of way, and they would say that's how the word is used here. And their argument is that what is happening is part of the inhospitable attitude of the Sodomites, that Lot has practically snuck these strangers into town, strangers who should have been investigated, their credentials should have been checked out to make sure that they're on the up and up, and so the Sodomites now are rudely demanding to inspect and interrogate these newcomers. Bring them out to us so that we can know them, so that we can know who they are. That's a very con- you might not have never heard that view before. That's actually a common view. Not in churches like this. That's probably why you've never heard it before, because you don't go to churches like that. You go to churches like this. One Methodist minister I was reading said that the, the story of Sodom is really about wickedness, greed, corruption, and self-centered people who refuse to aid the poor and care for the strangers in their gates, and that what is being demanded by the men of Sodom in Genesis 19 does not have sexual connotations. That's what some say. Now, how do we know what the word no means in verse 5, if there is a range of, of meaning? Well, as always in Bible interpretation, context is king, and Lot's response to the Sodomites in verse 8 is very helpful. Verse 8, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. There's that word again, known. They have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now here, known clearly has sexual uh, overtones, right? Uh, I, have, I have two daughters that have not known any man. That doesn't mean that they don't have any guy friends. They're, they're actually engaged to a couple of guys. Um, so, and, and Lot's attempt to appease the men of the city by offering his virgin daughters to them does not make sense if all they wanted to do was simply get acquainted with these visitors. We want to find out who your guests are, Lot. And Lot says, here, abuse my daughters. That doesn't make any sense. No sense. And by the way, this is a horrifying proposal on the part of Lot. More on that next week. Trying to save my ammo for Lot next week. But now, suffice to say that Lot's offer to the men should end the debate as to what's going on here. But nevertheless, liberal arguments of a reinterpretation of the sin of Sodom still abound and actually are becoming more popular. Now, some would concede that the men of Sodom wanted to know their visitors in a sexual way, uh, but they would still say that this is not ultimately about homosexuality. They, they would say that what's happening in Genesis 19 is the threat of rape, and that's why God judges the city. And they would also say that, well, the Bible condemns homosexual rape, it does not con- condemn consensual same-sex relationships. And so they would still argue that the sin of Sodom ultimately is not about homosexuality, but in essence, it's about inhospitality. Uh, Matthew Vines, one of the leaders in these efforts to reinterpret what the Bible says about homosexuality, writes that while Sodom and Gomorrah are referred to 20 times in Scripture, homosexuality is never mentioned or connected to them. Huh? (laughs) Instead, he says, as Ezekiel says, the sin of Sodom was arrogance and apathy towards the poor. Now, Vines is flat wrong that Sodom in the Bible isn't connected to homosexuality. And if we're going to read, if we're going to go to Ezekiel, let's read everything it says about Sodom. And so, so we have Ezekiel 16, 49, 
And I actually read this to you last week as I was talking about the multifaceted sins of Sodom. It wasn't just one thing, it was many things. It says in verse 49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. So that's, that's the main go-to verse of liberal scholars in regards to pinpointing the problem of Sodom. And, and those, by the way, are horrible sins. We don't want to make light of those things that are going on there. Those are bad. But keep reading. Verse 50, they were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. They did an abomination. Many translations say abominations plural, but it's actually in the singular, and the ESV gets it right here. Yeah, there were all these other sins that were going on, but there was also a particular abomination, and in response to the abomination, God removes Sodom. Now, the fact that Ezekiel says abomination singular instead of plural is very instructive because Ezekiel makes abundant use of the book of Leviticus, a book where the word, that word abomination shows up several times in both the singular and the plural. And when it shows up in the plural, it refers to a collection of sins. But each time in Leviticus where it uses the singular form, it describes one particular kind of sin, same-sex relations. So, for example, in Leviticus 20, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now, what's really important about this Ezekiel-Sodom-Leviticus connection is that it suggests that the Sodomites regularly engaged in this kind of Leviticus 2013 behavior because, you know, they actually did not have their way with the angelic visitors. But Ezekiel says the people of Sodom actually did this abomination. They practiced it. It was part of their lifestyle. And by the way, you should know that this verse in Leviticus is talking about consensual immorality. I point that out. This is very important. I point that out because, because again, some may say on the other side, well, the bad thing in Genesis 19 was that these men were trying to commit these acts without the consent of the vis- visitors, and that's true in Genesis 19, but Ezekiel in linking the problem of Sodom to the abomination of Leviticus, is suggesting that the city was regularly and freely participating in these kinds of relationships consensually. And let's remember that God decided to judge Sodom before Genesis 19. There was stuff going on there before the events that we just read about this morning. And it is for this kind of abominable practice of rampant homosexual behavior that God removed Sodom according to Ezekiel 16. Again, they did an abomination before me, so I removed, I removed them when I saw it. So what we see in Genesis 19, what we see in Genesis 19 is simply a manifestation of the kind of abominable lusts that they had in their hearts all along, but, but now are more out of control than ever to the point of mob violence. But it's not just the Old Testament that connects Sodom with this kind of immorality. We get further help from the New Testament in pinpointing the problem of Sodom. 2 Peter chapter 2 says that day after day, Lot was distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So, the sexual sins of Sodom were happening on a regular basis. Every day, this kind of stuff was going on. 
And, and the book of Jude tells us specifically what kind of sexual sin it was. It says in Jude 7, oh, do we have it up there? No, we don't. I'll read it to you. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Genesis 19 didn't happen in a vacuum, but it came out of a cauldron of sexual lusts and activity that had evidently been going on for some time, and Jude pinpoints the particular kind of immorality. He says they pursued unnatural desire. Some translations say strange flesh. Matthew Vines and others argue that the strange flesh the sodomites were after was angelic flesh. They tried to rape angels. They had a sexual desire for angels. But just a cursory reading of Genesis 19 tells you that's not the problem. The sodomites did not know these visitors were angels. They appeared as men. And the sodomites don't say, bring out these angels that we may know them. Bring out these men. The unnatural desire is clearly same-sex desire. They had desire, and they pursued it. And the fact that they indulged in it, according to Jude 7... Uh, points to the fact that this activity was going on before Genesis 19. They didn't indulge in anything with the angelic visitors. <laughs> angelic visitors didn't let that happen. Uh, there was unnatural sexual immorality going on prior to Genesis 19, a kind of immorality that is contrary to natural sexual immorality. By the way, both are bad, right? The, uh, there, there's natural immorality, male-female relationships. The other is unnatural, contrary to nature. That would be same-sex relations. And so it is clear that the nature of Sodom's sin, while, yes, included injustice and callous disregard for the needy and crass materialism, wicked sins to be sure, it is disingenuous to detach a continuous, ongoing sexual perversion from the problem of Sodom. So the nature of Sodom's sin is clear, but, but also let's notice now the slavery of Sodom's sin. After Lot's insane offer of his daughters to these men, look at verse 9. And they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they, struck, uh, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. That's a horrifying picture of the insanity of sin. You would think that after these two beings demonstrated supernatural power and strikes them blind, they would be like, wait a minute, <laughs> what's going on? Uh, these are not ordinary people. They have powers way beyond what I have. Let's get out of here for our own safety. And they stumble off into the night trying to find home. But they don't care about that. They're reckless. Instead of running away from the danger, they thrust themselves headlong into it, still trying to attack. So desperate are they to satisfy their sinful passions. It's like they've gone mad. Often one of the lies we hear in a sexually permissive society is that people should have freedom to do what they want, to have relations with whomever they want, when they want, how they want, and that's the same as freedom. And Christianity says, no, 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 there's a proper context 
for sexual relationships, uh, namely a loving marital union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. It's not that God's a cosmic killjoy. It's actually the opposite. God has designed us, and as our designer, He knows best how we ought to live and function and what is good for us and what is bad for us. But what sin does, it pushes the boundaries, taking the good things that God has made and twisting them, uh, seeking pleasure and satisfaction in things that God does not permit. And so, a sinful world criticizes Christianity as being restrictive and repressive, holding people back from freedom, holding people back from living the way they want to live. And they say, we want to be free, we want to be free from rules, we want to be free from boundaries, we want to be free. And yet, any of you, any of you who have let your sexual desires run loose in a way contrary to the Word of God, any of you who have lived a promiscuous lifestyle or have been addicted to pornography, you know that what seems like freedom at first becomes slavery, a kind of addictive behavior that is as powerful as drugs, where the drive to satisfy your lust becomes stronger and stronger because sexual lust is never satisfied. It always wants more and more, and it disregards consequences less and less. And it's why you have millions of people who have wasted millions of dollars in pornography and prostitution and an endless quest to quench their lust. It's why there are countless families ruined and marriages wrecked through adultery. It's why even in the threat of life-ending diseases like HIV, people are hell-bent to gratify every kind of sexual urge and desire they have. Don't care about the consequences. Don't care about the danger. Common sense goes out the window. How many times, as a pastor, have I seen the vacant eyes of a sex addict who is a shell of his former self? I can tell the look, and it breaks my heart to see it. It's one of the saddest things that, that I experience in counseling. As this person confesses to doing and practicing things that he never thought that he would do in this insatiable quest for more. You see, the more you give yourself over to sin in an attempt to be free, the more sin has its grip on you, and you find yourself out of control. And we see something of this on display in Sodom. These men are out of control, heedless of the danger. John Calvin, writing about these blinded Sodomites, heedless of the, of the danger, groping for the door, says, that they furiously wage war with God. Calvin then writes that this, however, has happened not, on, not once only and not with the men of Sodom alone, but is daily fulfilled in the reprobate whom Satan fascinates with such madness that when stricken by the mighty hand of God, they proceed with stupid obstinacy to advance against him. And some of you who have come out of a lifestyle of sexual addiction, you can amen that. You're like, I know exactly what he's talking about. Waging war against God, stupid obstinacy. And let no one in self-righteousness say that, well, I'm not a slave. I do what I want to do. I'm in control. But Jesus says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And it does not matter if that's sexual sin or greed or arrogant pride or anger. Does it doesn't matter if, if you're not as extreme or as violent as the sodomites. Most people aren't. But make no mistake. All people, apart from the liberating grace of Christ in their lives, is enslaved to sin. In Titus 3, Paul describes unbelievers as slaves to various passions and pleasures. In Romans 8, 
Paul teaches that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's slavery. Uh, Neither desiring to nor being capable of submitting to God's law. That's horrifying. I vividly remember this in my own life. Uh, Before I was a Christian, I sometimes went through phases where I try to live like a Christian. I knew how I was living was wrong, and and I actually did feel like a slave to my own passions. And I I was living a kind of life that if I kept going down that road, it it would have killed me. And that scared me to death, and so I would try to change I try to turn over a new leaf, and this time I'm going to be different. This time I'm going to change. But it never stuck. After two or three weeks, I was right back into indulging in my sin. I was the epitome of Proverbs 26. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, why? Because at the end of the day, the desires of my heart didn't really change. I wanted what I wanted in my heart. That was more important than the consequences. Wherever your heart goes, that's where you go. Common sense doesn't matter. Threat of consequences don't matter. All that matters in the moment is getting what you want. That's exactly the situation with these sodomites. And, and, and it's no compromise. We don't, we don't want the daughter's lot. We're, we're not interested in that. We want what we want. They get blind. Boom. We still want what we want. And we're going to try to get it or die trying. Even stumbling around blind at the mercy of powerful angels, they are still bent on satisfying their desires. Such was the slavery, the madness of Sodom's sin, of all sin. Sin is never something you can play with or dabble in. It seeks to own you and consume you. So we have the the nature of Sodom's sin, and we see the slavery of Sodom's sin. But I'd like us to talk a little bit about the essence of Sodom's sin. So what was the essence of Sodom's sin? What was at the heart of their problem? Was it injustice and a lack of hospitable concern for the poor and needy? Was it sexual perversion? Well, while all those sins and more were indeed present at Sodom, I would actually argue that the heart of Sodom's problem was none of those things. Uh, They were all symptoms of another problem at the core of their hearts, and that's the problem of idolatry. I know this is not from Genesis 19. I'm getting this from Romans 1, which is another chapter that those on the theological left would reinterpret because of its negative view of homosexual desire and practice. Romans 1 is a horrifying picture of a people who know of God but ignore Him, who aren't thankful to Him, who want nothing to do with Him. And so what happens to a people who continuously rejects God? Paul says that such a people become futile in their thinking, their hearts become darkened, and they become fools. And their downward spiral then continues, as Paul says in Romans 1, uh, 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That's idolatry. Idolatry is trading God for something that is less than God. Could be a statue of a a fake God. Could be money. It's always the image that you see in the mirror. 
For you shall be like God, the serpent said to Eve long ago, knowing good and evil. In other words, you will reject God's revelation about what is good and evil, and you will determine it for yourself. You will de-God God, and you will call the shots. That's what Romans 1 is describing. And here's how this is linked with Sodom. How does God respond to the God-rejecting idolatry of the people? He judges them. And how does he judge them? It says in Romans chapter 1, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, don't forget, the same people who tried to reinterpret Genesis 19 say that while the Bible may condemn violent homosexual acts like rape, it surely does not condemn consensual ones. That's what they would say. But, But look at that. That's consensual. Passion for one another. Rick Phillips notes that Romans 1 teaches us that sexual deviancy is an overflow of a culture that has given itself over to idolatry. And when a society enshrines idols and rejects the Creator, then the created categories are going to break down. Even those basic normal sexual categories break down and become twisted and backwards. And in Romans 1, it's not that God is judging the people for homosexuality, as much as he is judging the people with homosexuality. You have here a society that has been so defiant against God that God says, okay, if you stubbornly persist in your rebellion, I will turn you over to yourselves and to your own desires. The common grace that has had a restraining effect on your sinfulness is now lifted, and you will be allowed to pursue your lust all the way to their conclusion and to your destruction. And when the constraints are lifted, it flings the door wide open uh, to all kinds of unrestrained sins in addition to homosexuality. Uh, Paul talks about such a people being filled with all manner of unrighteousness, uh, evil, covetousness, malice, murder, maliciousness, pride, heartlessness, and ruthlessness. And, And all of those things are running rampant in Sodom among a society which totally rejected God. And so God totally rejected them. And said, in essence, if that's what you want, you can have it. That's Sodom. This does not mean that that individual people who have uh, plunged into homosexuality are are beyond hope. It's not the point of Romans 1. Uh, But Romans 1 is looking looking at a people as, as a group, as a culture, as a whole. What happens to a society and their continual defiance against God? Indeed, if you're struggling with homosexual desires, if, if, if you're in that lifestyle, just hang on. I know this has been a downer so far, but there's hope. Sometimes I wonder if America is going down the same path as Sodom. As you look around and you see what is going on, idolatry running rampant, and not necessarily everyone's worshiping statues, but 
covetousness abounds, which the Bible calls idolatry, idolatry of money, of entertainment, of self. Anyway, that's for another sermon, but I couldn't help but think about our own nation. Paul finishes the downward descent in Romans 1 by saying in Romans 1.32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. It's a celebration of sin. That was going on in Sodom too. We, we know that because the prophet Isaiah says that they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Sodom was proud of their perversion. Again, reminds me of America. God help us. God save us from our idolatry. But finally, what I want us to consider is God's hope for all sinners. God's hope for all sinners. This has been a difficult sermon to preach. Probably been a difficult sermon for you to hear. Lots of darkness, lots of heaviness. But Genesis 19 is not without little rays of light. Uh, the angels, having witnessed firsthand the depravity of Sodom, they need no further evidence now of the judgment that they deserve. But before they strike the city, look at what they say to Lot in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or any, anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are going to destroy this place, because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting or joking. Now, what's interesting to me is that the angels don't immediately take Lot out of the city. They urge him to go and warn others, including their sons-in-law, including his son-in-law. And these sons-in-law are men of Sodom. They are evil, and they are wicked, and they're guilty of all the kinds of things that we have been talking about, and they deserve to die. But Lot warns them. Now, they don't listen to him. They think Lot is joking. That's not surprising. What is surprising is that they got a warning in the first place, which means that if those two wicked men, as vile as they were, would have repented and trusted the Lord, that they, even they, vile sodomites, would have been spared. There was an offer of grace to them and to anyone in the sound of Lot's voice, an offer of grace, even at the 11th hour, even at 11.59 p.m., because anyone and everyone who turns from their sins and calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lot's sons-in-laws ignored the warning, and they were consumed. It's too late for them. But if you're here this morning and you came here unbelieving, it's not too late for you. Like the Sodomites, you have broken God's law. And you, like the Sodomites, deserve God's wrath. And the warning to you is to learn from what happened to them and realize that God takes sin very seriously. And for you, the end will not come in a fiery destruction of your city, but in an eternal fiery destruction in hell. The Apostle Peter writes that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And friend, because of the coming of Christ, there is now a greater sense of accountability for everyone. Jesus preached and did miracles in the city of Capernaum, and they rejected Him. And so He said this to them, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? 
you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. As wicked as Sodom was, Capernaum faced a greater, faces a greater judgment on the last day because they had more of the truth of Christ and more of the works of Christ. And friends, we today face a greater judgment than Capernaum. We have more than them. We have Christ risen from the grave. We have an empty tomb. We have the fullness of God's revelation in the Scriptures. And so there will be a greater accountability for what we do with what we have. But the good news is, is that you needn't fear judgment because the hope of the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it by being condemned himself, to be treated like the ungodly on behalf of the ungodly, paying the price of the ungodly. So that if any ungodly would turn from their sins and trust Christ, hoping in his sacrifice to rescue them, any who do so will be saved from the wrath to come does not matter what kind of sin you have indulged yourself in. The blood of Christ is sufficient payment for each and every sin. And you may say, well, Deemer, I just don't know. I just don't know if I can be forgiven. Maybe, maybe you are here and you feel as, as depraved as the people of Sodom. Maybe you feel like you're worse than them. Maybe you've committed all kinds of, of sexual sins or other sins that make you feel dirty and unclean. And, and a free offer of pardon and forgiveness seems to be too good to be true. Can I really be forgiven? And can I really change and be different? Hear what the Apostle Paul says to you. In 1 Corinthians 6, he's writing this to the church in Corinth, and he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then check this out. I love this. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, some of the most hopeful words in the Bible. There is no one too dirty for the washing that Jesus provides through his shed blood. And there is no one too far gone that uh, they cannot be made into a new person, a new creation through the Spirit of our God. Christ is the only hope we have for forgiveness from sin and freedom from the slavery that it brings. And that's a message that unbelievers and believers need to cling to with all of our minds. There is only one hope, but thank God that there is a hope, and it is found in Jesus Christ. So turn to Him. Turn to Him. Let's pray.